0: Morning. Open your scriptures, if you're not already there, to Luke 5. I would, be, I would rather be here this morning than in an Armenian Orthodox church that has beautiful liturgy but does not preach Christ. I'd rather be here this morning than at a Mormon temple, even if the Mormon tabernacle choir were singing. I'd also rather be under an acacia tree with five believing Maasai warriors where Christ is preached, even if there isn't any service order. I'd rather be where Christ receives sinners rather than he is lost amidst beautiful architecture and liturgy and fine worship. I'd also rather be here than at a mega church that has a professional band and a lot of emotion, but where the sermon is only business advice and life principles. So it is a joy to be able to open God's word with you this morning and look at Luke chapter 5, where Luke has us on a search for truth and transformation. I have in my pocket this, I'm not sure you can see this, very difficult for some of you. I drove by this yesterday morning, It's in the middle of the road, folded up, and it caught my eye, so I pulled over and reversed and opened my door, and there sat this $100 bill. And as a good pastor and citizen, I looked around to see if somebody had recently walked by, did it fall out of their pocket? or out of their vehicle, and to my delight, nobody was around. And I even made it, you know, if somebody was looking out of the windows, I made a a good show of looking and making sure. So I picked it up, and I was like, what a blessing. And then I turn it around, and it says, Trump lost, laugh out loud, right?
1: And I'm like, okay,
0: okay. Your pastor is not greedy, but I will pick up a spare $100 bill, so... What is truth? That clearly was not truth, was it? Somebody threw out a counterfeit that caught my eye and they got, they got a little laugh out of it. A lot of people miss the truth. I was born again when I was 21 years old and I, I wondered if I had expected too much of Christianity. I wondered if I had expected too much Of Christians. And I'll develop this a little later, but what I came to realize is I expected too much from religion, and it failed. We're looking at the life of Jesus through the gospel of Luke, one of four different lenses that God has preserved for us in his word to look at and understand who Jesus is. And this morning, there's a simple question, what do the following have in common? A doctor, a man on his wedding day, a new dress, and a wineskin. What do those have to do with Jesus? Because they do have something to do with him. There are four illustrations that he puts forward, very simple illustrations. Jesus is a master teacher. He's not overly complex. And he puts forward these simple truths. And what's beautiful already in Luke, we're only in chapter 5, is that as Jesus interacts with people and demons, we get a clearer glimpse of who he is and who we are. And that's really the question that we need the answer to. And that is, who is Jesus? Recall the demon's profession in Luke 4.34. A demon Upon being in the presence of Jesus, humanity says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. They had a previous history together. And it didn't make sense that the Son of God was in a human body and the demon recognizes him and says, I know you. That's what Luke wants us to find out. To know Jesus for who he really is. And I don't want us to miss this, so let's, let's review. If you're there in Luke, I'm going to be looking at Luke, the first sort of narrative piece in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And, and it's this. It's, we're taking it from the demon's confession. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, Jesus has a holiness that provides us an accurate self-awareness. Or we would say it this way, Jesus' salvation transforms our relationship to ourselves. You might even call it psychology. A biblical, scripturally informed psychology. Remember this uh, in in. Chapter 5, verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. By the way, there's no accidents with God. A deliberate choice. He asked Simon to put out a little from the land. And, of course, he uses Simon's boat as a, as a pulpit, and he uses the acoustics of the water and the shore, and he teaches them. And we do not have on record the nature of the sermon, because that's not the point. The point is that Jesus is focusing on this man named Simon, who will have his name changed to Peter after this event. It's Simon, then it's Simon Peter, and then it's Peter, until afterwards when Peter needs to be restored, then it's Simon again. The greatest, you're, you're familiar with this, the greatest catch of fish in Peter's life, and what is Peter's response? He falls down in the boat at Jesus' knees, and he says, what? Because Peter has finally has an accurate self-awareness of who he is as he stands in the boat, not just with the carpenter, but as he is a sort of captivated audience in a boat with the Son of God. And Peter not only realizes who Jesus is, but that also trickles down and allows him to have an accurate awareness of who he is. And he says this, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. John Calvin wrote in the Institutes of Christian Religion, Man never attains to a true knowledge of himself until he has contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look at himself. See, Peter, Peter wasn't just in a boat full of fish. Listen to this. He was in a life full of sin. And his immediate reaction, he he is theologically informed enough to say, I should not be in such close space with the Holy One of God. So Peter says, get away from me. There should be a distance. And do you know when the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life, when the gospel actually starts to permeate your soul, there has to come a point where that's your reaction? Get away from me. I don't deserve to be in your presence. It's not safe here. See, when you actually understand and experience the presence of God, it is not complete elation where the guitar solo and the drum solo gives you goosebumps. It's Peter bowing down on top of fish. Or it's Daniel who turns pale and is sick for days. Or it's John who once put his head on our Lord who says he fell down as a dead man when he saw the risen Christ, the glorified Christ in Revelation 1. And you know what Jesus tells Peter? You know what Jesus tells John? Get away from me. Jesus says no. What a beautiful affirmation of Jesus to sinners. There's something that happens when we are in the presence of perfection. In this case, holiness, but perfect love, grace, kindness, power. And when you are in the presence of Jesus, when you see Peter Peter had been fishing, I don't know how many years, that was clearly the best catch of his life, a miraculous catch, and what doesn't hit him is the economical value. What hits him is who Jesus is. I wanted to be a rock star in high school. I listened to a song. Some of you might not even think this should be in a sermon. I listened to a song by Ozzy Osbourne, and I had to find out who his guitarist was and I wanted to be able to play the guitar like Ozzy, or like Randy Rhodes. And he was one of my childhood heroes. And he obviously had a classical background of instruction, so I bought my first little, you know, electric guitar, and I started practicing every night, typically for two hours a night, and started scales and riffs and speed exercises, and I would go to workshops, and I would write originals, and we formed a band, and we were decent. And I thought we were getting really good until I would go to workshops in South Florida where Steve Vai would play. You're like, I don't even know who that is. Some of you do. Or Joe Satriani. And to be about 15 feet away from a master, do you know what that inspired me to do? To put my guitar away forever. Forever. Because in the presence of perfection, you realize how far short you fall. I could never do that. Do you know if you just take that and amplify it to to its furthest degree, this is what's happening with Peter. He is in the presence of perfection, and he falls down. He says, you are the Holy Son of God, and you need to move away from me. And Jesus says, no. You know what the result was for Peter? It says they left everything. What was the everything? I mean, You can still hear the waves washing up on the shore, right? And the nets. What was included in the everything? The fish. They could have cashed in. Maybe God graciously used that to support the fathers, the sons of Zebedee, and, and Peter's household. We don't know. We're not told what we do know is in the midst of, of absolute success, they walk away. And the lesson is not when you get into the presence of Jesus, you go into full-time ministry. That's not biblical. Or that you become a full-time evangelist. That's not scriptural. What it does mean is that Jesus becomes more important to you than anything else. He fills that emptiness. He fills, he fills that witheredness in your soul. So much so that he is willing and worthy, that you are willing because he is worthy to leave everything right there on the beach and follow him. Jesus also has a holiness that cleanses us before the Father. Or we would say this, Jesus' salvation transforms our relationship to others. That would be sociologically. And this is the leper. This is not just the the leprosy that we're familiar with for the last several hundred years. Leprosy has basically been, been understood as Hansen's disease, but biblical leprosy included a variety of diseases and disfigurements and was often contagious. But the result of that, unlike what we have in our day, is that they became social, emotional, and economical outcasts. This was addressed last week in some detail. But you have a leper that is socially and economically and relationally distanced. And the emotional effect that that would have on an individual is severe. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. While he, while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Wait a minute. He shouldn't be in the city. Levitical law said he should be where? Outside. And if anybody happens to go into his area outside, he is supposed to yell something. Right? Unclean. That's the issue. Later on, Jesus, who is clean, will be taken outside of the city and crucified like an unclean person. But a leper who is unclean can come into the city and confront the Holy One of God and be clean. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face, not unlike Peter's response, and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's called faith. And maybe you need to cry that out this morning. Lord, I am filthy, I am dirty, I am unclean. You can make me clean if you're willing. That's a, you want to know what salvation looks like? You want to know what trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin looks like? You want to know what the gospel looks like? Or new birth? It is an unclean person saying, if you will, I know you can do it, make me clean. And Jesus, look at verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. That is unheard of. Did, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have to touch him to heal him? No, because this is followed by the paralyzed man. He doesn't touch him. And there's a nobleman's son whom he's not even in the presence of, and he heals him. So what is happening here? Why? Does he touch the leper? Of all of all the miracles and all the uncleanness, why touch him? Well, there's an example that we're supposed to get. Jesus is healing him emotionally and socially. He's restoring this outcast to fullness. That's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus' kingdom is. There's a, there's a fullness from old to new. Here is a person who has probably not felt human touch in a very long time, and Jesus, in his compassion, touches him. Keep reading. Jesus says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. The proof is this was going to be legally documented, that this is a true healing. You no longer have leprosy, unlike the faith healers of our day who heal lower back pain and occasional migraines and other things that cannot be proven. This is proven, to document who Jesus really is. What is the good news in this? Jesus takes the people that the world sees as at the bottom and whom religious people judge as externally unclean and he accepts them and he touches them and he restores them. Religion said if something clean touches the unclean, it becomes what? Unclean. By the way, the religion you believe... And the Old Testament that you hold says the same thing. It says that if something unclean touches a dead corpse, or a certain kind of animal, or a human discharge, or a leper, that uncleanness is translated to you. Here you have something that's reversed. You have have somebody who is clean, of a different kind of cleanness, a different degree of cleanness, and he touches something that is unclean, and it becomes clean. A holiness that can't be defiled, and that is what you get with Jesus. But there will come a time when he will be put outside of the camp and be killed for uncleanness. And people will despise and people will reject him and they will say, let him come down. He saved others. Let him save himself. Let him come down and then we will believe him. But no, he's showing you who he really is so that when he dies, you understand that he is dying for our sin so that you can receive His righteousness. Third, Jesus has a holiness that can forgive sin. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse, verse 20. Or we would say this, Jesus' salvation transforms our relationship to the Father. When Jesus saw their faith, this is the friends of the paralytic man, He said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, that's not why they brought Him. That's not why they tried to avoid the crowd. Well, they did avoid the crowd, and they lowered Him down through the roof. Of course, there's a group of people here, the scribes and the Pharisees, who weren't always the bad guys, but they are the protectors, the guardians of religion. And the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 21, began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's their objection. And do you know what? They're exactly right. I'll ask you the same question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer is can a priest? Can a pastor? Can baptism? Can communion? Can giving enough in the offering? No, we, see, we under, they're right. Their theology is spot on. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And they're exactly right. Look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he read their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say? And then he asks them this question. It's, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you. Or to say, rise and walk. Now their objection is met with an object lesson, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he does. Which is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven. Or to get up and go home to the paralyzed man. It seems it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because... You, can't, you don't really have to prove that. There's no objective, verifiable proof that you need to give. Whereas if I say, rise, take up your bed and go home, what has to happen? <laughs> he needs to stand up on legs he probably hasn't used in years and, and lift something with muscles he hasn't used in years and walk home. So it's easier, in my belief, and I think this is the riddle, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, than to actually say something that demands immediate proof. But so that you may know that Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sin, he tells him the harder thing, and he goes home. He heals him. But there will come a day when his own hands will be nailed to a cross. And his feet will be nailed to the cross. And suffering will be purposely delayed until the maximum torment can be inflicted upon the Son of Man. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will beat him. And they will take a cat of nine tails and rip the flesh off his back. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has done that for you. He could have healed himself. Fourth, Jesus has a holiness that overcomes what religion thinks of socially and politically unclean people. That was the text that was read for us this morning. Levi is unclean politically, according to the scribes and Pharisees. He works for Rome. He collects taxes. Verse 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Everybody thought he was unscrupulous, and even the honest tax collectors were despised because they looked as though they were oppressing their own nation. And he's right there in the middle of his work. He's right there at the IRS office, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Do you know how that went over with the scribes and Pharisees? It reinforced every criticism they had against him. See, we knew it. We knew it. He doesn't see. He can't be a prophet. He doesn't see that this man is unclean. He said to him, follow me. And his response is the same as Peter's. Look at verse 28. And leaving what? Leaving everything. He left his job. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. The teachers of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are still there. Look at Luke 5.17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. From the entire nation, you had representatives of the religious elite down in Jerusalem and Galilee and Judea, and they're all gathered together to evaluate This man, Jesus. It is likely at this time Jesus gave him the new name Matthew, which means gift of God. He's right there levying tax, levying duty on merchandise that was brought through. Tax rates were not always clear, so a person could make a lot of money personally by charging more, and they were despised for working for the Romans, for the dirty Gentiles. And of course, if you work for the dirty Gentiles, that uncleanness of the Romans transfers to you. Now John the Baptist made it clear that there is nothing inherently wrong about tax collecting. Luke 3:12 to 13 says this: "Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And John and said to him, "Teacher, what shall we do?" Listen to John the Baptist's response. And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized. By the way, authorized by whom? Rome. Than you are authorized to do. But here you have the religious people failing to understand who Jesus is, his message, his ministry, and his kingdom. So look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. Made who a great feast? Jesus. Jesus just showed compassion and acceptance. And he said, Levi, come, follow me. And there was a large company at this dinner party of very unclean people, of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Jesus is at the dinner party, and the scribes and the Pharisees hate him for it. But See, you're not supposed to read through this account fast and miss this. And the Pharisees, verse 30, and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And here are the four pictures. In order to help the scribes and the Pharisees understand the message and the kingdom and who Jesus is, he gives four pictures. Jesus answered them. Here's the first picture, the physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You see, what he's saying here is the scribes and the Pharisees, you think you're clean. You're ceremonially clean. You're religiously clean because of what you do externally. You think because your outside looks good and you're in religious garments and you've memorized religious phrases and you tithe openly, you think you're clean. I'm not here to save you. I can't save you while you think you have a righteousness of your own or a righteousness through the law. Folks, this should not be a newsflash here this morning, but it's worth repeating. Religion cannot save you. The law cannot save you. There are two groups of people here, and one group viewed the others as sinners, unclean, unhealthy. And they were highly critical that Jesus was at the dinner party with Levi. And you know, it's interesting, because... In 2,000 years, things have not changed. The self-righteous religious are quick to diagnose other people's sickness. When I was born again at age 21, I told you I expected a lot from Christianity. I was an idealist. I was saved out of darkness. I didn't expect bullying and intimidation from ministers. Because Jesus is full of grace and truth. I didn't expect 50 flavors of hate within the church. Because Jesus is love and kindness. I expected more from the Christianity that I attended that I almost quit after the first semester. As a 22-year-old freshman, I just didn't see a whole lot of Jesus Christ walking the campus and I wrote in one of my freshman English 101 journals that I was disillusioned and jaded with Christianity, and I'll be leaving. And God used, her name comes right to my mind, an older English teacher who responded on that journal after she returned it and gave me a grade, and the words that she said were full of grace and truth and allowed me to stay there for the next six years. Three and a half for undergrad and then a master's. I didn't expect there to be manipulation or greed or lying or brittle legalism in the church or in missions. Even though I expected resistance from the world, especially as a foreigner living in Africa and Western Asia, I did not expect other Christian brothers and sisters to hate me. Does that surprise you? Have you given that much thought? Unless they reason I'm not truly their brother which is not a loophole, by the way, that Jesus provides them, because he says this in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, then who's my brother? First John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Well, that's me. I, I publicly make that confession every month from a pulpit. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So how do you explain the hate of those who say they love God? Well, look at the pages of Luke's Gospel. It happens to Jesus. It happens to his disciples. And yes, there will be times when we are tempted not to love our brother and sister in Christ. There will be. But we can't settle down and live there, or that tells us something about the person's heart. Just as we are going to be tempted not to love our enemies on occasion, but we cannot settle down and live there, or that says something, it reveals something about our heart before God what I realized is I expected too much from religion and religious people, and it began to disillusion me and push me to the darker shades of gray against the entire thing. And that's why it's so important we start opening the pages of the gospel again and seeing Jesus for who he is. See, Jesus diagnosed the Pharisees and the scribes accurately. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is the same group that is criticizing the disciples and Jesus for being at the dinner party. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And some of what you have bumped into, and some of what I have bumped into, even within what professes to be the evangelical church, is merely a whitewashed tomb. And what I'm going to exhort you to do is do not equate that with who Jesus is and come back to the Scriptures and have a biblically informed, a gospel-informed understanding of the wonderful, merciful Savior. There was coming a time when Jesus would not heal himself, like I said, but rather suffer. Matthew twenty-seven forty-two. he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. No, they wouldn't believe him, even though all these miracles had been done among them. The next three pictures, really quick, the bridegroom. Here you have the scribes and the Pharisees. They want the disciples to fast rather than celebrate. Not only did they, they not like the company that the disciples and Jesus were keeping, they didn't like the joy that they had at the gospel. They wanted them to be miserable, just like they were miserable. Can you make wedding guests fast fast with the bridegroom when the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is no. And the bridegroom is there at a dinner party, and there's feasting and celebration because of the gospel. But there would be a time when celebration was not appropriate as Jesus hung on the cross and became, as Isaiah 53.3 says, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And that was not the time for celebration. Celebration. The garment, look at verse 36, he also told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. You can try to patch up an old garment with a new piece of cloth, and after you wash it, it will shrink and it will pull and it will ruin both garments because you took a patch from the new garment. And if you move on and all you're thinking about is is the picture, you're going to miss what he is saying. Let me. Jesus is announcing to the scribes and Pharisees I did not come to earth to patch up old religion. I didn't come to the earth to renew, to have a revivalism among Judaism. I came to bring something completely new. That if you try to put what who, who I am and what I'm preaching and what I'm going to do, if you try to put that on the old religious system, you're going to ruin both. And some of us have a nasty patchwork of religion of the old and the new. And we want all this law, but we're trying to patch it on to the gospel. And it's confusing. There was coming a time, though, when Jesus' death would tear a piece of cloth in newness. In Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And now the new had come. The Old Testament curtain, the Old Testament barrier into the Holy of Holies is now ripped open so every single believer functions as a priest and has direct access to God, not just once a year, but anytime you come to, G- to the Father in the name of Jesus. And then finally, the wine, skins, and wine. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. You've wasted the wine and the skins will be destroyed. You've you've basically destroyed everything. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. Okay, so you have the whole process here of, of fermentation and putting it into an old brittle wine skin and the expansion and the gases of that would destroy the wine skin and therefore destroy the wine. Here's what he's saying. I'm bringing something new. It's not fully realized yet. There's a process. I'm bringing something new. And if you try to put it again, like the patch, if you try to put it into the old wineskin and fit it all into law and your Old Testament structure, it's going to destroy both. The new creation Jesus brought brought, the new birth, the new life of the Spirit could not be held in the old religious wineskin of Judaism. Hebrews 8.13 says this, In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and we're trying to put the gospel and the new creation and new birth and the Holy Spirit into an old wineskin. Because somehow we feel comfortable and sentimental about the law. Do you know it was actually Rome, whom the Jews expected Jesus to run out of their nation and give them a revival? It was Rome who destroyed not only Jerusalem, but the temple in the process in AD 70. It's as if God was saying, this has to become obsolete. Do you know there is coming a time when Jesus will drink unspilt and unspoiled wine with us? It's fermenting right now. Matthew twenty six twenty seven to twenty nine. We're familiar with this because we observe the Lord's Supper once a month. But he he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying, "Drink of it, all of you, for this is the my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." But listen to verse twenty nine. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus offers all things new. Jesus offers new health, new love, new joy, a robe of righteousness, and something that an old wineskin cannot hold. beautiful picture in reference to this in John 2 after the first sign that he had done at a wedding in Cana it says when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from he said the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now there's a reason all these pictures are starting to kind of come together It's better. It's new. And here's the point. The gospel is so much more and so much better than what we had expected. Our disappointments come from religion, not from Jesus. One final passage. Close your Bibles. Turn off your devices. In Luke 5, Jesus falls down in a boat of fish and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a wicked man. Later on, after the three denials, Jesus, what does it say, goes back what? Fishing. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, put his name back together, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples, were together, and Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. He's trying to revert back. feels as though he's failed the Lord. There's no renewal. There's no restoration. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got on the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay, you're going to start seeing these similarities. But there's one dissimilarity that we can't miss. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. and He threw himself into the sea. What's the difference? Luke chapter 5, Jesus has an awareness of who God is and an awareness of himself, and he says, get away from me. And now... He still has an awareness of who Jesus is. He still has an awareness of who he is. And he tries to get to Jesus as fast as he can. Where are you this morning? Because that's the gospel. And in both cases, Jesus says, come near. Come near and I will make all things new. A gift of God's grace. I'm going to invite our music team forward for a of response, I will lead us in prayer, and if you want to know more about the good news, we don't rush off, we have a coffee connect time, we'll linger, there are men and women here who would love to open this back up to you, or explain to you, or pray with you, Um, we we are here for those needs. Uh, Some of you need that first realization of your own sinfulness, and Jesus' holiness, and depart from me, and to hear him say, no, I'm not leaving you. Some of you need to jump back in the water and swim to Jesus as fast as you can because you're already his child. Children, have you caught anything? Let's pray.